You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, um, see, don't answer. Right, this, these are rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm Analytics good. don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker. And a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about sports. Used to be about the week in sports and internet. I know, I keep hoping no, you'll about, say that. No, it's just about sports. <laughs> not the week. Uh, not the week. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538. With me in the studio all together is our senior sports and narrative correspondent, Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. It's a decent name. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It's not organizing a John Starks conference. I still, that's still, still the, high the peak of my career. Uh, you're also, of course, an ESPN W columnist, Neil Payne. Hello, Chad. Sports writer and editor for 538. Hi, Neil. Folks, before we get going with the show, we should get right into it. Aside from this, ahead of their time, mm-hmm. continues to be great. Listeners? Well, you know, it's all me, even even the one I told Joe what to say uh, as he narrated it last week. <laughs> Listeners, for those of you who have not been listening, these are the extra podcast episodes that have been in your feed. This last week's episode was about uh, the man who ruined, who revolutionized and ruined This episode was awesome. Yes. I expected to hear more of Neil's voice, but it was almost just like an opening of the door so didn't that Joe could it. walk through. Right. <laughs> It was um, awesome. Much better when spoken with that British accent. Absolutely. Can you do it yourself, Neil? Do you no. have a British accent? Anymore? No, not at I'm all. I'm terrible at accents. Come on. Uh, terrible repertoire. Uh, all right. So, yeah. So, listeners, Charles Reap is the man's name who we're talking about who uh, thought he had solved soccer and ended up ruining British soccer in I, the process, but was ahead of his time because he was trying to use stats. Yeah. And, and, and then there was the whole issue of, like, causation versus... What's the other word? Correlation. Correlation versus causation, which I found fascinating, even though I had to like go back on my stat man <laughs> like archives to understand what <laughs> the difference we, we is. Talk, did, did we talk about that? that in, in, in the, the other it always comes. It up always one comes way or up. Yeah. You're always so like, in this instance, the British soccer. Yeah. He thought he had realized that it long that fewer passes meant Three. more goals. Um, and, and there was a correlation between the two, but yeah. that didn't mean that fewer passes caused more goals. Thus ruining English soccer pretty much forever. Listeners, take a listen. Next week's episode, get excited. Sorry, this week's ex- episode, excuse right. me, coming in a couple of days, is about the backhand in tennis. Yeah, that's correct. And the the wo- two-handed backhand. The two-handed backhand, excuse me, and the woman who, who discovered it. That's right? Uh, yes. One, 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 uh, pretty much the parallel story of uh, of two women, one of whom sort of came up with or or was one of the first most successful players with the two handed backhand, which you never ever saw, uh, especially in women's tennis, but in in tennis in general back in that era. And then the other of whom kind of took it to heights that had never been it's seen. Sort of before. like Darwin and Wallace, and they're competing right. theories of evolution. That's what popped into my mind. Of course, yeah. I, I, I have so I many more questions about this backhand, but maybe we'll Let's save wait it for, for next, next week. Yeah, next Tuesday. Yeah. Next Tuesday, election. Day edition of, of Hot, Hot Takedown. Take we got to figure out how we're going to be. Yeah, what are we going to do? Just saying. Uh, all right. So, and then there's one more after this double handed backhand, double handed backhand, two handed right. backhand um, uh, that we are going to take a week off during Election Day week and then come back at you, at you, all of our listeners. Um, so, thanks for listening to Heather Time. Those of you who have been, and if you have not been, really, it's even better than hearing the three of us talk every week. All right. On this week's show, the World Series may already be over by the time that you are listening to this podcast, but we're going to talk about the last five games anyway, and we're going to break down what happened and then maybe what's to come. If you you know listen to the first five minutes of the podcast, you said, you know what, I'm going to wait until after the World Series game six to listen to it. Don't. Keep, it, keep listening, because we might be out of date before we know it. <laughs> um, then we're going to talk about Russell Westbrook and how good he can be when he doesn't have Kevin Durant stealing the ball from him every night because we are finding out just how good he can be. Uh, and we're going to talk about how far one team can ride one star, which I feel like is something we talk about a lot is sort of uh, how much one player can affect the team and the league in the various different different sports. So we'll talk about, about that with Russell Westbrook in the NBA and the Thunder. Uh, and then yet again, the Patriots are really good. And yet again, we will try and make sense of why. And that means yet again, we will say the name Tom Brady. 
Neil has been writing about this. Tom Brady. Neil's got the stats. And then for our sig dig, the Oakland Raiders, a team that we may have never mentioned on yeah. our takedown before. No. I can't think of a single moment when we've talked about the I've Raiders. talked about them on Around the Horn. But that's, that's not how take down. Generally, it's, the it's yeah, the only time we would have talked about them is in a mocking. Uh, but today we context, do not come to mock. But today we're not mocking. We come them. to Marvel. So well, we're, we might be kind of gently poking fun. Stay tuned for Sick Day. <laughs> All right, let's go to baseball, where the Cleveland Indians are up three games to two on the Chicago Cubs. Both teams riding historic, historically uh, historic droughts coming in to the World Series of not having won the World Series. Chicago lost two of three at home. Corey, Corey Kluber, the Cleveland Indians pitcher, has been insanely good, an ERA of sub one in the playoffs. Um, but the Cubs mounted a comeback in game five. Araldis Chapman pitched two and two-thirds innings of scoreless relief. Neil, let's start with you. This postseason seems to be the one in which it is all about Long stretches of a closer or a great reliever coming in and throwing more than one inning and having that not be the ninth inning. Is there anything that you've seen by putting this into practice that flouts what we thought was sabermetric truth, which is that it's a good thing to bring these great pitchers in early in the game and let them pitch if you have no better option? No, I mean, I think if you were one of the people that had been beating the drum to kind of change and, and radicalize closer use and and do some of the more out there things that we talked about even last week with, with Rob Arthur uh, about, you know, the push to use your closer in high leverage situations, even if that isn't the ninth inning, and to use them for more than three outs at a time, all of these things that are considered anathema to the classic idea of the closer coming in and the ninth inning being his inning. I think if you're someone that was advocating that uh, over the years, this is like your dream postseason. Pretty much everything... The outcome matches the process. Right. Everything that you've been saying for a long time seems to be borne out in especially the two teams that have made it this far into the World Series. You know, we talked about Andrew Miller last week with Cleveland. And then uh, since then, we saw Aroldis Chapman throw 42 pitches and get eight outs and kind of come in and in some ways save the the Cubs season. Uh, Certainly he got the save in that game, but also, you know, pitched his way through a few, uh, you know, out of a perilous situation when he came in and then just sort of overpowered and dominated and prevented the the Indians from coming back. Do you think that we're finding a new way in this postseason to value relief pitchers? Like, are we seeing something so distinct that we haven't seen before that there will be new metrics and viewpoints on, like, how you should use relief pitching? Because I kind of think of it as, like, it's always been something at odds with bringing a player in for just one inning. Because if you think of, like, basketball, bringing somebody in just for, like, to hit one three-pointer when they haven't played, you're like you never have a ton of confidence in that. And I know a pitcher and his strength and his power, like it's more acclimated toward that. But it seems like in every sport, you want somebody to come in and like be able to like find a groove and find a rhythm and play for more than just like one sweet spot inning. So, do you think that the takeaway to like aside from this particular World Series is going forward, we're going to see an explosion in? you know, use and payment of relief pitchers. Can I jump in real quick and say that managers, old school managers would say that the rhythm and the groove is knowing the role. That instead of getting to the rhythm by taking, you know, five shots before crunch time or something, that the role, but knowing you're going to pitch the ninth and you're going to start with nobody on base, that's the role, that's the rhythm. And that's the sort of like having the predictability. Right, yeah, that's the comfort zone that, you know, has always been one of the arguments that you should use your closer in this very narrow, specific, structured way is that it's just sort of like the rhythm and the routine of of doing that. But I think we are going to start to see teams kind of now that, especially that it's been shown to be successful on the World Series stage, I think we're going to see people you know, experiment with trying to figure out who are the relievers that can be asked to throw more than just, you know, three outs worth of, of baseball. And, and will be paid for that extra skill, perhaps. Yeah. Sure, well, yeah. Because, like, and this is abstract, but you know how they always say that when you, if you're working out, if you start running, in the beginning, you're going to find, you're going to have a lot of positive effects from that running, but the more you do it, the more your body's going to get acclimated to it, and it's not going to stretch the boundaries of 
your physicality and you're not going to get the same rewards. I'm uh, like, it, this is abstract, but in some sense, if you're a relief pitcher and you come in and you pitch every inning, there gets to be a rhythm to that. Yes. But then does there get to be a part of you that doesn't feel as like stretched or challenged in a new way? And the, like the, the mechanics of it become rote. Well, maybe, I mean, there's definitely another argument for using the relievers in a more sort of uh, contained, focused uh, capacity is just that you see a Roldis Chapman, maybe he's a, a freak of nature in general uh, because he can throw 103, 104 miles an hour, but guys like him are really giving it everything that they have on every single pitch and the conventional wisdom is that you really can't do that that long like one of the reasons that we do limit closers uh, you know and, and relievers that can throw that hard from doing it over the course of many innings is first of all the injury risk I think uh, is something that people are concerned with and that co- goes hand in hand with the fact that they are just going all out on every single pitch whereas starters one of the things about them and maybe one of the reasons like we talked about last week that scoring is so high in the first inning is that starters really are pacing themselves throughout a game. And there are plenty of starters out there. If you think of every single level that they kind of came through in baseball leading up to the majors and being a starter in the majors, they are the best pitchers uh, among their peers. Uh, like relievers, most relievers are, and, and maybe Chapman again is failed an exception. Failed starting pitchers, kind of failed starting pitchers right. in some ways, or they're people Back that to kind of yeah, right. They they, <laughs> they were not as good as uh, the their peers who ended up being starters. And, and there's even you know examples of this in Major League Baseball where if you change from being a starter to a reliever, your ERA drops so, yeah. because it uh, because you are kind of able to harness everything that you have into a very controlled, specific, short burst of right. of focus. Right, we've seen that a few times with when pitchers pitch in an all-star game, for example, or in the postseason when they come in. Okay, so I want to talk about the, the Cubs offense. Ten runs in five games. This from a team that scored much more than two runs a game in the regular season. Kate, as you've been watching, have you seen a reason for it? There, there are some stat head ones that I can give you, but like when you're watching the Cubs, does it seem like they're getting unlucky, or is it just that Javier Baez just has got to stop swinging at every pitch at every five inches out of the strike zone? This is where it's tough to know how much of like a, a failure or a struggle early in the postseason then makes you feel like you're playing catch-up the whole postseason because with the Cubs it feels from watching like they're being way less you know patient than they usually are chasing more pitches than they usually do and they know the storyline that's out there that they're not hitting and of course you would think that the best thing to do when you're not hitting is maybe to be more patient but that's counterintuitive to a human being wanting to make it all up in one swing and so it's tough to know with the Cubs whether it really has been an accumulation of knowing that they're not hitting and then trying to maybe reach for pitches because they want to make something happen as opposed to the time that when they've been most successful throughout the series, it's been when they've taken a walk and then allowed like transferred the burden into the next player, but in a slightly better position. That's when they've been most effective, but you just haven't seen it in any kind of consistent basis. Right. Some stats that were um, in some of our, 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 prep for this show showed that the Indians are just bombarding the Cubs with breaking pitches and the Cubs are not performing well against those breaking pitches, for example. And so, and we see that in, in sort of bias swinging wildly at, at stuff out of zone. But during the regular season, the Cubs saw a breaking ball 25% of the time, which is about average, but in the world series, Cleveland has thrown 34% breaking pitches. So about 15 more breaking balls per game. And, the Cubs don't do well against curveballs. They were last in exit velocity against them, and so this year. So it's like a chicken or the egg. I mean, I'm assuming the Indians are throwing pitches, cur- like change-up pitches, curveballs, because the Cubs are poor at them. Or maybe it's because the Indian staff is more accustomed and they're stronger. I mean, I know it's a little bit of both. Right. But you wonder Tomlin how much and, they're and like, Kluber both have yeah. their breaking balls, for example. And then you're wondering, like, well, are they? do they know the Cubs are chasing pitches? And they're like, look, guys, make them chase. Right. Right. And uh, the the thing that you might want to be concerned about if you are the Cubs is that, you know, some of the metrics that we have to describe how unlucky a team has been, for instance, batting average on balls in play, the Cubs have a 295 
BABIP in this series and the league average and kind of the indicator that you sort of look for uh, whether a team is being lucky or not is around 300. That's kind of the the uh, normal batting average on balls in play. So you can't really say the Cubs have been unlucky in terms of, oh, the hits are just not falling in. Right. They're really just not making much contact. I mean, they've struck out 53 times. They've only walked 15 times. And again, some of that has to do with the way in which the Indians are using their pitching staff. Kluber has been fantastic, but also, you know, Andrew Miller, uh, Cody Allen out of the bullpen have been dominating, even Brian Shaw doing well. So if you think about that, uh, maybe that also goes back to what we were talking about at the at the beginning of the segment, which is sort of learning this lesson that I think Terry Francona has in some ways he has the privilege of having two closers so he can do this more readily than any other manager but this realization that like look if starters have a certain ERA and a certain you know strikeout to walk ratio because they're pacing themselves but also because of just the way in which they kind of pitch that if you can sh- allocate more and shift more of your innings away from the starter as they're going into you know the second bottom of the second time through the order or the third time through the order uh, and and take that away and give it to these relievers who are often they have weird deliveries they're six foot ten or whatever Andrew Miller is they're you know all of these peculiarities that make them extremely difficult to hit in short bursts if you can kind of stretch them just a little bit more than they're used to and also kind of bring them into the game earlier and have them be okay with that and uh, we talked about the comfort factor too uh, then that is, seems like a recipe for shaving runs off of your earned run average as a team. Okay, so here's a question I always have to answer on around the horn. Right. And the question would be, all right, do you blame the Cubs hitting or are you giving credit to the Indians <laughs> pitching? Now, you have no explanation that can follow it. Right, Neil. right. You just need to say which one, one. Which just, one? I like no explanation. No explanation. Be, be on around the horn right now. Right. Indians pitching. All right, great. All right. Ding, ding. Well, what about you, Ding, 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 ding. Well, how about See, both of you guys? The, the, put, I guess put you guys I would pick Indians pitching because I lean toward picking – a the value great performance. over a, yeah, right. like a positive performance I, I think over a Indians negative. Pitching, I'm not allowed to follow up. That's very hard to, to I know be, it's yeah. really hard. Do do. Don't worry, yeah. you get points for no, no matter which part, <laughs> part you say. There uh, are no wrong answers. All right, there quick, are only long answers. Real quick That's for right. those who are uh, listening and the series not being over yet, uh, we're going to talk about the chance that the Cubs can pull off this comeback and or the chance that the Indians can break their own streak. 538 odds have it like so. The Cubs have only a 24% chance of winning the World Series with two games left to play. However, they are more or less 50-50 in both of those games, and that's how you get to the the 24%. So they are slightly favored uh, Tuesday night, Jake Arrieta on the mound but in Cleveland, but favored because of Arrieta versus uh, Tomlin. And then Game 7, you've got both both home field advantage and Corey Kluber on the mound. Corey Kluber, who has looked great. But Corey great. Kluber, who's pitched so much in this series. Right, exactly. But what's great on short rest. On such... I know. But now short rest again on short rest. On right, short right, right. Rest. So if you were talking about rhythm or routine. True. Maybe this is <laughs> but then there's a tipping point. <laughs> yeah, so I did a little bit of research on this uh, this morning where I, tr- I found playoff series where pitchers uh, started th- at least three times. Uh, there were, believe it or not, back in the 1903 World Series, uh, there was one person, Deacon Philippe, who started five times in the uh, eight-game series because they played eight-game series back then. Anyway. That makes no sense. That's very bizarre. But anyway, so I looked at the game scores of the pitchers in their three starts that they made, and game one, 62. This is on a 0 to 100 scale where 50 is average. So pretty good. Uh, game two, 60, you know, only dipped mm-hmm. a little bit. In game three, they dropped down to 55, which is still pretty good, but mm-hmm. it kind of shows that, uh, you know, by that third outing, and, you know, again, no one has started three games in a, in a series, period, uh, uh, since 2011, and it's only been done twice since 1992. So take that with a grain of, of salt, but still, it kind of shows that, like, by the third time around, even these guys that have shown that they've been doing great, obviously, in the first two, to even get the opportunity to start a third, uh, you know, might lose a little bit off their... Uh, of their velocity. Here's an alternative uh, theory for you. Okay. They face the same team three times. And perhaps... That team learned. Perhaps. Fatigue. It's simply familiarity. Perhaps. I I could buy that. I think it's probably a little of both. Find out. Yeah. All right. Let's leave it there. Uh, We will do an emergency pod. Neil and I will do an emergency pod. Whoever wins 
the World Series. Kate, if you're in the building, you're welcome to come on by. Soup on up. So, uh, if the, if so it will either be tonight, Wednesday or do, Thursday. Okay. Uh, and we'll break down uh, what happened. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hot Take Down This Week is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They do this by delivering pre-portioned ingredients to your home with a recipe about how to make it into a great meal. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste while you make things like this. Pan seared chicken with roasted fall vegetables and butter caper sauce. Spicy lotus root and purple carrot stir fry with sweet potato noodles. That sounds nice and autumnal, actually. Lemongrass roasted port with Romanesco cauliflower and coconut rice. You can get all of that for less than $10 per meal. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash takedown. That's blueapron.com slash takedown. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. Blueapron.com slash takedown. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Russell Westbrook is averaging 38.7 points, 12 rebounds, and 11.7 assists per game through his first three games. That is a triple-double that has never happened before. No player in history has scored 100 points, 30 rebounds, collected 30 rebounds, and tallied 30 assists in a team's first three games of the season. Only four players have done that, and any three-game stretch, Westbrook is one that has done it before. Kate, before we get into all this, let's just stop for a moment. So what makes Russell Westbrook so (laughs) unique, right? Like, I'm I'm a casual NBA fan compared to the two of you. I know what Russell Westbrook Russell Westbrook is quite good. I know he's super dynamic. I know that when he's on a breakaway down the court, like you see him move in ways you not you're not used to yeah. seeing players move. But what is it about his game that allows for this kind of three way dominance? What what's in his skill set? It's got to be something that you can't quite name because you named all of the certain physical attributes that set him apart. But then there's some level of engine and determination that takes all of those physical components and make him otherworldly in a lot of ways. And like, I think if you actually look at in the past, how many like guards actually rebounded and I forget who did the first article on this showing that there was a huge deterioration once a guard on longevity of a guard, if he was rebounding at a certain rate, because he's obviously in the air a lot more and then you're going to see a downward slide in terms of injury and fatigue. And Russell Westbrook just defies all of that. And so somewhere in that in inability to define actually what separates him is what separates him. Because, I mean, I don't know what it is, but I would think somebody who rebounds at this rate and plays at this rate is unsustainable. And yet he's sustained it for long enough that you kind of have to ask yourself, maybe he's going to defy how sustainable that is. Yeah, and I think in terms of just like the me- the measurables that you can look at for him, I mean, he is one of the most athletic players in the league. He's also pretty big. I mean, at 6'3", 200, that's pretty big for a point guard, I think, for the most part. We talked about, you know, Jason Kidd was considered a big point guard, and he was 6'4", and you've got somebody who, you know, is is almost that size, but also a far better athlete and, you know, is faster, I think, stronger in some ways, too. Uh, so really, like, this physical package, he might be pound for pound the, the best athlete in the league. Uh, and, and also to play point guard and have the instincts that he has, I think that kind of contributes a lot to all of the things that he's able to do on a court, which might be unparalleled in the game right now. So how much of this is about Kevin Durant leaving? And how much of this is about Russell Westbrook getting better? Because we expect players his age to, to progress and, and age well, given you know his past, his past track record. Well, it, it, then it, that question leads me to the question of whether you've got Russell Westbrook now and his usage rate is allowing him to dominate the game in ways that he couldn't with KD simply because... Right, his usage rate is above 40. Yeah, and and everything he's doing on the court are things he can now do 
without conscience of what Kevin Durant needs and how he has to distribute the ball to Kevin Durant. So it's like you've got what what comes to my mind is like you've got the Golden State Warriors on one side who have the problem of too much talent and then there's diminishing returns and then you've got Oklahoma City who I think logically we'd all say well they don't have quite enough talent and need some other star power but then I, then I ask myself, is it even possible for Oklahoma City to sustain this and Russell Westbrook to carry them because he doesn't have a partner in crime? Um, so I think it feels like we've got the Golden State overload on one hand of talent and then Oklahoma City underload of talent. But see, to and, me, he does have partners in crime. This is not LeBron on those awful Cavs teams where LeBron was sort of willing them to 40 wins, 48 wins, whatever it was, by, by sort of uh, cult of personality almost right. alone. The Thunder just re-signed Victor Oladipo, Victor Oladipo for four years, right. Stephen Adams Cantor. for four years. And so it's a team it, – I guess three games in, isn't it just the, that the team needs to readjust to having Westbrook as a, at the center? And can't you have a team that wins 48 games maybe even with Westbrook and, and good players – and, and decent players around. Well, so I don't think the question is whether I think Oklahoma City can win 48 games. It's do I think Oklahoma City actually can compete for a title with this formula. And I think the reason I'm saying I, I can't picture it is because I don't know that we've seen anything like it. I mean, but, even Jordan had more talent around him. Let me reframe it real quick. That's one question to address. Yeah. Another is can a team with a, with a talent like Russell Westbrook get that talent a triple-double? for the season forget about the championship get me to the end of the regular season right. can one player play let's give him some injury time right play 65 games and average a triple double when the talent is a, is, is arrayed around him the way that it is right. for westbrook especially given that all that we talked about about the playoffs maybe being a different season in the nba a little differently but a different season than, than Do, should we let season. neil talk i mean i, I it's, such, <laughs> it's so rare that you and i are just I know, talking about true. the NBA. but uh so first of all you know, he might well average a triple-double. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it outside of Oscar Robertson, you know, level pace factors, uh, which, you know, in the 60s, I believe... So the Thunder don't play fast enough, this. you're saying, for that to happen? The right, NBA exactly. In the NBA doesn't play fast enough anymore. transition more now. It's not as much like box out and rebound as it used to be. Right, uh, but, uh, but also just like there are probably 30 fewer possessions per game compared to the 1960s when you had these guys putting up these crazy stats like Oscar with the triple-double. Because of the shot clock? Uh, well, or... I mean, the shot clock existed back then. They just played a breakneck pace. They didn't care about whether they missed shots necessarily uh, back then, so the you know shooting percentages were much lower, and there were just more opportunities to grab rebounds, points, assists uh, back then than there are now. Uh, but to, to go to the point back... Uh, back up to the point about you know one player doing it by themselves. We can kind of say we've seen a version of Russell Westbrook do this before because when Kevin Durant missed huge chunks of the 2015 season, that was when uh, Westbrook had a 38% usage. Right now he's at 40%. Only, uh, f- uh, only uh, I want to say five seasons have had a player have 38% usage or more. Those seasons are Kobe in 2006 with the Smush Parker legendary, you know, one-man show Laker team. That team he carried to the first round of the playoffs and then lost to the Suns. Uh, then you have, you know, you know Westbrook. Neil just did that off the top of his head without any without any looking at Smush Parker, first. 2006, first round, <laughs> lost, lost to the, the Suns. Suns. I mean, Sorry, we remember yeah. that game, though, where Kobe wanted <laughs> to prove. We do remember that game. He wanted to prove to everyone that he could be a team player. And so he sort of backed off and let and was like, fine, you know, you guys, Phil, you want uh, to, uh, to prove that that I'm not being enough of a of a passer, then I'll let Smush take the shots and we'll see how far we get. He proved that in an elimination game and they smushed. they were eliminated. <laughs> yes. Uh, but Westbrook, you know, on that 2015 Thunder team was kind of given free reign for large amounts of the season to do what he's doing now. And that team won 45 games and missed the playoffs in an exceptionally deep uh, Western Conference. You've got Michael Jordan in 1987, which was, you know, Michael and the Jordanaires. This was a team in which he really did everything uh, because you had like Quentin Daly and people like that playing next to him. Uh, and, and that team was sort of... St- 
in the midst, maybe the biggest example of the knocks on Jordan that uh, that he was too much of a one man uh, team and that he couldn't do it alone. Anthony Davis this year is, is kind of doing some version of that as well. Allen Iverson in 2002. So these are examples of players that you know kind of took over their teams and and did it all and I think Westbrook is more efficient than somebody like Iverson and and a better all-around player and so that might help Oklahoma City more than those other teams that had the singular players were helped by their stars but at the same time those groups don't they they have a long track record of making the playoffs and say losing in the first round and winning just enough games to kind of get in but not to do anything and like you said Kate actually contend all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to shift this a little bit to talking about Westbrook as point guard because Neil uh, this week or earlier or last week, I think it was last, week. Uh, wrote about Chris Paul and why Chris Paul is so good and cannot get to the conference finals in a very storied career in which many people have agreed he is the best point guard in the league, aside from the, that that era that we like to forget where we thought Darren Williams might be the best point guard in the league. Um, Remember that? That was sad. That was really, (laughs) what were we thinking? That was some short-sighted stuff. Uh, So, but Neil, you wrote about Chris Paul um, and sort of noted that he has been the the fifth best point guard of all time by advanced metrics that I'm going to very quickly gloss over. And yet teams with a point guard as their best player win far less often than teams with a center as their best player, teams with a power forward as their best player, or teams with a shooting guard as their best player. Now we should know that Jordan really Jordan really is things kind of there. Kind of, yeah. But really, if you have a great center as your best player, then you're going to win more. Sorry, if you are a champion, it's more likely that a center is your best player than a guard is your best player. And so I think this connects to the Westbrook thing. So Neil, I wonder while you were looking into Chris Paul, whether that helps inform what we're talking about around Westbrook round Westbrook really struggling with with Russ's name. Uh, what is it about a point guard that makes it not so great to have your team centered around that that person? Yeah, I mean that is one of the kind of biggest puzzles about this particular era I think of basketball that we're in right now especially is how you can have someone like Chris Paul with the numbers that he puts up which suggests that he is on the same level as a LeBron or or a Jordan or maybe like just a half a notch below them but like if you look at his advanced metrics they're right in that conversation and it just doesn't seem like uh he has had anywhere near as much success as we would expect of a player of those statistical bona fides. And uh, if you break this down and kind of look at all of history, there really was only a brief era in which point guards were sort of the driving force behind championship teams. And it really started with uh, Walt Clyde Frazier of the Knicks in 1970. Before then, none of the players that had been uh, the best player on a championship team were categorized, at least using the positional designations at basketball reference as a point guard. And you'd have to go back, aside from Curry uh, a couple of years ago and Chauncey Billups on that 2004 Pistons team where you could say Ben Wallace easily was the best player, Rasheed Wallace. There were a lot of players there. It was an ensemble cast. Before those two, you'd have to go back to Magic Johnson in 1988 as the kind of point guard that was the driving force behind a championship team. Again, apologies to, say, Isaiah Thomas, for instance. The advanced stats have always been kind of down on him and Maybe that's a conversation to have at another time. But we saw, you know, Steve Nash, kind of the quintessential point guard, always was sort of foiled, uh, you know, uh, short of even making the finals uh, uh, during his best years with the Suns. Uh, you know, all of these examples, Chris Paul is in this lineage of of players. John Stockton is another one that comes to mind, uh, who, who were point guards and they just couldn't get past the hump. And if you kind of plot it out statistically, it is not just a perception. It's actually a significant effect uh, when you when you kind of control for position and try to predict okay, uh, here's how good your team is here's how good your best player is, okay yes or no, is your best player a point guard if the answer is yes, then you're about half as likely to win a championship as if the answer had been no given the same level of talent and, and production from your best player, which is pretty startling But on some intuitive level it makes sense because a point guard intrinsically is supposed to be the glue among other talented players. Like the point guard's job is to bring together the talented players and facilitate and make those better players better. Right. And so if your glue, the glue of like every time we say that, 
I think we mean like doesn't get a lot of recognition because there's lots of stars and other talent around them, but like that point guard or whoever it is, even the glue in like your your friend group is usually not the most talented. You know all of those different things. So in in essence, it's like well maybe it does make sense that the point if your point guard's your best player, it's because you're missing something else. So, right. But I do think we should just say everything we're talking about here today, whether it be the durability of a of a triple double for for Westbrook or the durability of a, of a team oriented around the point guard, suggests that Thunder are in trouble as far as if they want to win a championship. But I have no confidence in that because of Russell Westbrook being other. Worldly right. in a lot of ways. So, but isn't this analysis what that Neil did looking at other worldly players in a way? Like, doesn't that get know, baked in? Russell Westbrook, to me, is nothing like Steve Nash. Right. I totally agree with you, Kate. Like, Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook are of completely different, almost like species. Heritages. Yeah. And, in terms and, of point guard. And Westbrook himself, if you had to kind of compare him to other players that were... Uh, you know, uh, of a same statistical footprint or fingerprint, I guess, uh, you would look at, you know, Kobe came up for the usage rate. LeBron is certainly in there for the all-around kind of versatility and kind of stat stuffing. And those are players who were the best player on championship teams. So I think maybe this this uh, Chris Paul conundrum is more of a critique of the pure point guard, which I think, you know, no one would accuse Russell Westbrook of being for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but maybe that gives hope that he is going to be different because think about, you know, we talked about Curry as being a point guard who was the best player on his team that won the championship two seasons ago. But Curry was, again, cut from an entirely different cloth from both Chris Paul and from Russell Westbrook. I mean, he was the first player to kind of dominate a season in the same way as a Jordan or as a LeBron in terms of that statistical level but as a pure shooter. Uh, we had never seen a player kind of base his entire game around pure shooting and be that effective. So almost it's this kind of asterisk where it's uh, you know you can't have your point guard be the best player on a championship team unless he's some kind of weird actually <laughs> right. not really a because, normal conventional point guard which i think applies to because Westbrook. we said curry couldn't win the title because he was too based he's on too shooting. soft so. and too yeah sh- shooting based well all that, right yeah we'll have to wait and see as the journalists like to say let's wait and see uh all right let's leave it there and move on to the national football league they are 4-0 since Brady is back, and Neil, you wrote that they are playing some of the best football that the Patriots have ever played in the Brady era, basically, that they're about middle of the pack for the Brady era, and that when you look at the component parts, it's particularly impressive because nothing is working as well. Nothing is above average, really, for that Brady era, aside from Brady himself, aside from the passing game. Uh, Neil, was there anything else that popped out of you during during your analysis you did for five thirty eight? Uh, I mean, that was pretty. You pretty much summed it up, Chad. Uh, you you clearly have read the story. Uh, Do but, my homework. Yeah, uh, but yeah, if you look at like the expected points that are added, which is kind of we've talked about this in a stats. School, yes, right? we did. Uh, that that is kind of just measures uh, how much progress is being made towards scoring points by every play that the offense makes and on defense sort toward stopping the other team from scoring that you know the patriots are not running the ball well since brady came back and they're not uh, playing very good defense since they came back they're they've been you know a little bit uh a little bit above NFL average which for a patriots team is actually kind of below the norm uh if you if you go back through this Belichick dynasty era. And and so it kind of, they're just leaning heavily on Brady and Brady has been unbelievable so far this season. Uh, So his passer rating right now, I know we've talked about passer rating being, you know, kind of a flawed stat. It, It changes with time that people don't always know, but look at this. His, Passer rating is one thirty three point nine out of one sixty. Yeah, I think. Well, uh, what's the perfect passer rating? It's like one. F- isn't it around one fifty, one fifty four point seven or something? Whatever like that? it is, Brady's it's high. it's absolutely nuts. He's leading the NFL in QBR, uh, and this is a guy who arguably had the best quarterback season in NFL history in two thousand seven. He's playing better now than he did then, uh, and so. I don't know how much uh, how much longer he can keep it up. I mean, he's 39 years old. Uh, a lot of quarterbacks, 
you know, don't see that age at all, much less uh, have their best year at that age. But uh, it, it really has been mind-boggling. And I don't know if it's a sign for concern for the Patriots, though, that they are putting so much on Brady to kind of carry them. Or is it a sign that the 7-1 and Patriots have all of this untapped potential in terms of underperforming, quote-unquote underperforming at various other aspects of the game? Like we could see if all of a sudden their defense started to click – whatever that means, right, mm-hmm. click, play better, like, we'd have a monster on our hands. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, definitely. More but is there like, any evidence that they defense yeah, like, is, is underperforming compared well, to what we Well, just because they're, like, they're usually, traditionally, Patriots defense are right. stronger. Yeah, Not uh, that this group of them should be playing better. Yeah, I mean, I should say that pretty much all of the kind of leap in performance that they've had since Brady came back is Pretty much Solely on due to Brady. Due to Brady. They, I mean, they were not bad. Uh, they went three and one with Brady's various understudies, uh, and they were an above average team, but they were kind of, you know, a, a decent but not amazing team. And they've jumped up to be, according to a lot of power ratings, the best team in football since that so, time. So I want to go to a little, a little thought experiment. Kate, let's do it. You have some personal experience with this one. Uh, let's let's play a clip from. Uh, Kate's other other offerings on the ESPN network. This is from her Will and Kate show. If you could run a simulation of Tom Brady's career in 50 different universes, how many of those 50 different times does Tom Brady become a long-term starting QB? Producer Dan. I say all 50. 50 times. Every single time. Oh, I would probably say like low 40s to mid I'll go 40s. one further and I'll say in all 50, he wins at least one Super Bowl. Wait, in all 50, he wins at least one Super Bowl? I think he's a Super Bowl champion if you no, win his career 50 times of, in oh my 50 God, different Dan, spots. To say that Tom Brady would win 50 Super Bowls, that's one for each in every iteration of his career, is preposterous. <laughs> but you can't prove a negative, right? Like, we can't prove this. Producer Dan. I know. On blast. Do you see my tone on ESPN Radio is so I was, different I was gonna than say on a podcast. that you have that, that a little bit more sports more radio radio yeah. thing happening, whereas the podcast, I'm very NPR-like. But I think, Kate, it's, it's like you're more assertive. Every, every sound lands a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, all right. Back to the actual. Here you're so, the, so, the Terry Gross yeah, sport. This was, <laughs> as I said, at the end of that clip where I'm like, well, we can't prove, we can't prove it, right? Well, I was like, well, damn it. I'm going to try and prove it. <laughs> So by I, I mean Neil. I'm going to try and prove it by enlisting my good friend Neil Payne to run Tom Brady's career 50 different times to try and prove Dan to be as preposterous as I said. And just so I understand the hypothetical here, we are looking at Brady on the Patriots or with each different team. How how is this working? So the goal was like on any team judging by where he would randomly get drafted. Yeah. So uh, what I did here (laughs) for this. Uh, since there had been so much kind of deflate gate, uh, you know, what will the Patriots do with Brady? What, what if they don't have Brady? This was all the way back, not before this season, but before last season. Uh, so I cooked up some metrics that we could use that would kind of try to isolate Brady's stats and, and pull them out and keep the rest of the team, you know, the rushing performance and the receivers and the defense equal, and then try to figure out how many games the team would win, given just sort of like you take Brady out and you put in some average quarterback or whatever. So I had those tools already. So I figured, why not kind of also put them to use here, where I would take every franchise since Brady's first year as a starter, so 2001, and and go through last season, so nothing to do with 2016, but for the 15 seasons between 01 and 15, I guess 14 because I kind of tossed out 2008 because he didn't, you know, he was injured in the first game, Uh, and so I sort of did a, okay, here's the Steelers with Brady in 2001 and 2002. Basically, if he had started his career with the Steelers through 15, here's their odds of winning the Super Bowl each year. And I did that for the Jets. I did that for the Bills, for the Falcons, the Panthers, etc. And I came up with the odds of him winning at least one Super Bowl in every destination. So they ranged from, if he had been on Pittsburgh in 2001... So over over a 14 or 15-year yeah. stretch... Mm-hmm. Can Tom Brady lead any franchise 
to a Super Bowl. Yeah, based kind of, on basically. their talent. Like, that what year. were the odds? Okay, right, exactly. Based on all of their non-quarterback pieces in each specific year. If you took out Ben Roethlisberger, for instance, on the 2006 Steelers, and put Brady in, what would be the odds of that team winning the Super Bowl? And and so on. Okay, and so what on. were the odds? So. Well, uh, they ranged from, with the Steelers, they were number one. That's why I'm mentioning them so much. Uh, there, If you had put Brady on the Steelers to start his career, there would be a 91% chance that he would win at least one Super Bowl over the subsequent 15 years. Number two was the Seahawks, 89%. The Patriots themselves, oddly enough, only 83% chance that if he replayed his 15 years in Foxborough, where, he would win at least one Super Bowl. Where is it hardest to win a Super Bowl if you're Tom Brady? Uh, Detroit, uh, it was 20%. The, uh, so there's an 80% chance that if Brady starts his career with the Lions, he never wins a championship. On average, it was 55%. So the average NFL team, if you if you plopped Brady down in a, in a randomly selected situation, 55% of the time he'd win at least one Super That's Bowl. Just 20, 25% of 26. the time he wouldn't. 26 out of 50 simulations, according to... To Kate's conversation with producer Dan. Then. Exactly. So I simulated, uh, I did a simulation of a simulation oh, yeah, in the sense meta. where I did the 50 career blocks that you that you and, and producer Dan were talking about. And I, try, and I uh, did 50 different kind of careers. Each one was seeded with a random Tom Brady destination. So uh, if you, on average, again, 28 is the number out of 50 that he would win at least the number of universes out of the 50 that he would win at least one Super Bowl. Uh, the the highest he ever had was 38 out of 50. That happened once in my thousand simulations of the thing. He never got to 50 out of 50 or 40 out of 50 for that matter. So the idea that you could put Brady anywhere and he would be guaranteed to win a championship uh, doesn't seem to be supported what was the statistically. Lowest? That he won over uh, sixteen out of fifty was the okay. was the lowest and that's with, okay. scenario. So, so that ahead, in those ahead, in those ones he ended up with, you know, the Lions. I bet a lot. Uh, the the Browns, the Raiders, the Cardinals. These are teams that is sort of had the lowest odds of of him winning at least one Super Bowl with. And this conversation on the Will and Kate show was sparked by the idea of luck playing a role mm-hmm. in a professional athlete's career and how. It felt at that time, because I think this was probably either right when he was coming back from the four-game suspension, and so many folks often in New England saying that Tom Brady would have been, as you heard producer Dan say, like, is not the beneficiary of Belichick's system in any regard. Now, I do allow for the fact that Tom Brady is talented in his own right apart from Belichick, but... I do feel like there's not enough credence given to where a player lands when he's drafted and the factors and the variables that play in. And so to to say that Tom Brady would be a starting quarterback and be a Super Bowl champion in every incarnation of his career felt mind-blowing. Yeah, and, and even as part of that, that my experiment didn't take into account, but it's that you know, the years of accumulated knowledge under somebody like Belichick, and they've had great offensive coordinators over the years too, you know, Josh McDaniels now, but you think about some of the other guys too, uh, that, you know, he has been in a situation that has allowed him to grow as a quarterback as much as the team has also succeeded. Now I will take this clip and play it on my Will and Kate show. So this is what I want to talk about. I think that we should have, you know how old sitcoms used to have like crossover episodes where the characters would meet each other at some point i would love to just do a 538 hot takedown thing where we are the like the ombudsman of a talk radio show and we just pipe in and just ruin everybody's fun with every hot take as it happens like a live yeah well no just like like a live annotation (laughs) of a radio show maybe that could be a good like live event where we bring in first take or around the horn or whatever, and mm-hmm. we are, like, live dinging in and annotating it that way. Right. And you're like, actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't I want, I want to say actually. It's annoying to say actually, <laughs> live, live fact-checking. Yeah. What right. a concept. Let's leave it there and move on to our significant digit. When a telling number from the world of sports gets handed down to us like the tablets from Mount Masada, today, our Moses, it's Neil Payne. Neil, would you prefer to be Statman or a prophet? Well, uh, I well, am the deliverer. Of the sig dig, Neil, only slightly deliberate. less important. Uh, and so the the number for this week is twenty three. 
That is the number of times that the Oakland Raiders were flagged for a penalty uh, during their Over the game. season. In one game? In one game, in yeah. One game? On Sunday against the Tampa Bay Bucks, uh, for, for, they were, they were uh, hit with 23 penalties for 200 yards. That was the most penalties that one team has racked up in a game since at least 1940. The, the, and that's just because we don't have data going back past 1940. It could very well be the, the most since before that. But, uh, and that was the third most penalty yards that a team has, has racked up in a single game game so the Raiders were playing like uh at, at least in belligerence the Raiders that we think of from the from the 70s though. do we have a breakdown of like offsides versus personal <laughs> fouls versus false starts I think you can find those uh somewhere but what what's interesting is the Raiders themselves uh on the season as well also lead the league in penalties taken and uh one of the interesting things that our friend Chase Stewart wrote about at 538 today is this idea that penalties might not actually be a bad indicator for a team that uh th- there's not as negative a correlation between penalties as you would expect there to be against, say, winning ball games. Uh, and his hypothesis, which is something that I think is kind of interesting, is uh, that you know the types of things that lead to penalties also when a penalty isn't called are highly beneficial things like aggressive play, maybe play that is perhaps over the line of what should be allowed by the rules. And, and uh, there, there was a great story about this in the Wall Street Journal about the Seahawks from uh, a few years ago when their defense kind of had that monster season in, in 2013 and they kind of burst on the scene uh, was this idea that, you know, people were complaining that the Seahawks were committing pass interference basically on every play and daring the refs to throw as many flags as they wanted to, they were kind of taking this calculated gamble that, look, we're going to get flagged occasionally because we actually are breaking the rules of football, but for every flag that we take, we'll get away with a certain number of penalties that will go uncalled, and it'll be worth it to us to give up the occasional penalty if we're able to play better defense as a result of breaking the rules or or skirting the rules uh, to be charitable. We should do a whole segment on that because mm-hmm. I have about eight questions that I am not going to ask right now. Okay. <laughs> we, can, we can certainly come back to okay, that. Okay, cool. Book it. Joe in the studio. Joe, book, you got a, that? book a segment for yeah. some future wow, okay. hot takedown. Then I'll save my discussion about the bad boy Pistons as well. Yes, uh, yes, yes. That's a good segment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's leave it there for today. Thank you, Moses. Sure. For course. delivering what you delivered. Thank you, Kate Fagan. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Joe Sykes. Our podcast prophet is Jody Avergan. We got production assistance from Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, Andrew Wagner, and Jonathan Yales today. We got a big team helping us out. Uh, you know, a lot we, of people out there to make this happen. Yeah. It takes a village. You can email us at podcast538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Do not forget to subscribe and tell a friend about Hot Takedown. We got some nice momentum with these ahead of their times. We'd love to keep it going. When you subscribe, when a new person subscribes, it, it makes us rise on iTunes. When you review or rate the show, it makes us rise on iTunes. We're all about the rising. What a religious imagery today. All about the rising. We're just yeah, trying profits. to connect with a lot of different audiences. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.